So, retrospectors, what historical events are we ticking off on this week's run of Today in History? Well, Monday is the anniversary of the day Roger first publishes famous thesaurus. Then on Tuesday, we say happy birthday, Mr. Potato Head. On Wednesday, the extraordinary stories of the child soldiers who fought in the American Civil War. On Thursday, how King James changed the word of God. And on Friday, what did spam emails look like in 1978? We discuss this and more on Today in History with the retrospectors. Ten minutes every weekday, wherever you get your podcasts. Hello man fans, Ollie Mann here with The Modern Man. This week's feature interview is possibly my favourite kind of life story interview that we've ever done. It's a man who's had some extreme highs and some extreme lows, let's put it that way. I don't want to ruin the story for you, but I think you are going to enjoy it. Uh, The Zeitgeist this week was recorded on location in Lisbon. How about that? Um, along with about 53,000 other delegates, Ollie Peart and I went to Web Summit, which is this huge event for internet companies. There are 17 stages and 1,400 startups uh, and us dicking around on your behalf. <laughs> it was all a bit bewildering. The main stage there is um, an arena of the type that Justin Bieber would typically play, except instead of it being Justin Bieber performing there, it's like tens of thousands of people whooping at an executive from Yahoo or whatever. It's very odd. Uh, anyway, we had a great time there. And of course, we are only able to do that kind of thing thanks to you and your donations. So thank you to everyone who continues to pledge our spear money. Uh, visit modernman.co.uk to do the same. Uh, and help us make some more interesting and different things to bring you. Uh, and I will need support with this show because my retirement plans, as it turns out, are in tatters. Uh, Sam has written in using the feedback form at modernman.co.uk. Uh, he says, Ollie, do not plan on retiring on your flavoured ice concept. Lemon and lime flavoured ice is in all the supermarkets in California by the bag. Sam, you have crushed my dreams like flavoured ice. Uh, Right, in this episode, you're going to learn how to pass under the radar of the Edinburgh Crime Stoppers, what not to name your internet startup, and you'll hear a review of the vibrator that only costs a pound. No prizes for guessing which section of the show that is. Let's go. On this week's Modern Man. We had plastic bags, we had bananas. Actually, I had a banana and Dell had a cucumber. How not to rob a bank. Your step-by-step guide. The photographer nearly passed out because it was watching a guy having a procedure done known as genital beading. And a piercing question of sex adorns the foxhole. But first, it's the zeitgeist with the man who, if he was rebranded as an app here at Web Summit, would just call himself Trender with no vowels. It's Ollie Peart. Hello, Ollie. What is the big story of this week? Zero hour butlers. Right. <laughs> Something that Ed Miliband wasn't too fussed about in the last election, <laughs> as I recall. Let me explain. We're at Web Summit. There's an awards called the Startup Awards. Uh-huh. And they have shortlisted six App of the Year candidates, right? There were two apps on there, one called Launder App and the other called Zipjet. And they are both laundry service apps Interesting. in a short list of six yeah now there are millions of apps out there ollie yeah there are. why are they shortlisting two which are laundry based i suppose the answer must be that if you were to look at the apps that have really made a difference to the average man and woman in the last couple of years not the ones that the industry is talking about not the ones that are hot and exciting 
are the ones that actually people have been downloading. You know, I would say a couple of years ago it was Netflix and your on-demand video apps. And then for the average punter, I know they've been around a while, it became things like Uber and Airbnb, didn't it? Sharing stuff. <laughs> so I guess it's like, what's the next thing? What is the lifestyle thing you need delivered to your door? And they've come up with someone to come and pick up your laundry. I think we're entering a new era of domesticization where your average house will probably not have a washing machine, tumble dryer, uh, you know, the, the usual white goods that you might expect in your average house. I reckon, yeah. I reckon you could get away with living in an apartment without any of those things and appify your life. Yeah, you probably could. And actually what's interesting is I suppose the logical extension about where this goes as a sector is you then have a laundry app that you share your laundry machine with other people rather than a professional service. Yeah. So, so you could have a, a washing machine. You'd be the only one in your apartment block with one. You sort of rent it out. People. You crowd. Yeah. 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 Exactly. Like an Airbnb. But but would you be happy with somebody else's shit stained pants? No. Mixed in with your. No, laundry? I wouldn't. But I wouldn't be happy giving some random a lift to Boreham Wood Station either. But the point is, lots of people are happy to do that, and they've built a company on it. You know you can get those boxes of food, in, of subscribe to those boxes of food, and they come pre-measured with the ingredients. Yes. But then you could probably, there's probably like a handyman app where you could hire someone to come over and cook <laughs> it for you. Yeah. You don't have to do anything. Yeah, you could. Just sit there, done. I've not tried the one where a chef comes and cooks in your house, but that is a thing you can do. Yeah, you definitely can do that. I want someone to see if they can do it for 24 hours. Let's not set a challenge, because realistically, one of our listeners isn't just for the sake of the glory of being on The Modern Man actually going to do this with their life. But let's just ask the question... How many service-based apps have you used in a day before? You yeah, know. I want the answer to that question. I want yeah. to know. What's next on your list, Ollie? Disruptors. Oh, yeah. Now, that is... That's what Web Summit's all about, man. Yeah. So, We're disrupting podcasting by recording a podcast here. So what I've spotted is the word disruptor and disruptive literally everywhere. Yeah. So this place is rammed with new startups. All kinds of weird things... And the word disruptive, we are disrupting yeah. the industry. Yeah. It's everywhere. And, and I often feel a bit sorry for the people in that industry. Like, I know that they're trying to get seed funding when they say, yeah, we're disrupting the contact lens industry. I always think, well, what about my optician? I like my optician. It's a very aggressive forthright word, isn't it? You're sort of suggesting that you're going to come in, you're going to kick the bottom brick out, and the whole thing's going to smash down, and you're going to rebuild it. You're, mm. You are an anarchist in that industry. I saw a guy... And he was uh, pulling an app where it's like basically it helps you play the guitar. Okay. And on his little spiel, yeah. it said underneath that this app is a revolution and disrupting the industry. And I thought, what? Which industry? The music teaching teaching guitar. music industry. <laughs> I mean, how much can you go in and go? Fuck all you guitar <laughs> teachers, <laughs> you bastards! Watch this. You know, yeah. I'm in here disrupting it. Yeah, you're not disrupting it. You're just encouraging people to watch videos online about it. It's different. It's a really negative buzzword. Yeah, there's a lot of alpha male bell end who can be the biggest Silicon Valley twat going yeah. on. There's, yeah, there's a fair bit of that, and it and it is being embodied with that disruptive buzzword that exists. Yeah. Why not just just be nice? Just tell us what it does. Agree. Have you got another trend for me? I do. Okay. So there's something else I've noticed on the show floor. Oh yeah. Company names. I mean, so there's drop the vowels, which is a trend that's been going for a long time. Yep. But now it's they're all single words. And what I like is you can kind of go around and try and guess what the company does just from the slightly obscure words they've chosen. Which is what we're going to do now. Oh, have I guessed your game? You guess the game. Oh. I'm going to give you a name of some startups and you have to guess what they do. Okay, so real startups you spotted here at Web Summit. Real startups. These okay. exist. Okay. 
I play this game anyway. Like sometimes with Helen Zaltzman, we play a game where we just remove a famous host from a TV show and say, well, who'd be good in their place? You know, Holly Willoughby leaves this morning. Who's taking a place? Who's it going to be? Jim Davison. Exactly. You've got to think quickly. That's a terrible suggestion. Yeah, it'd be great, though. Yeah. No, it's obviously the bloke off X Factor, isn't it? What's the name? Ryland. He's panting for that job. Anyway, the point is, <laughs> that's a fun game, and this is a game that I play in real life. Okay. Yeah. Okay, well, then the rule will be that you've got to answer as quickly as possible without thinking it. You ready? Yes. Flixel. Flixel? Quick. Uh, how's it spelled? F-L-I-X-E-L Okay, uh, it's a movie app They um, let you see which adult movies are showing near you uh, it's Straight on porn, straight on porn Am I wrong? Yeah Living photos created with Flixel Cinemagraph apps Are the hottest visual medium in the world for Facebook, Twitter and Instagram ads No, they're not, never heard of it Blogfoster <laughs> <laughs> um, So you like adopt a blog So um, someone's blog's not very good <laughs> And you take them in and you offer them a good home and you give them advertising. Am I close? Suppose. No. Blogfoster makes data-driven influence and marketing scalable and supports advertisers and bloggers while overseeing... Oh, it's so boring. Overseeing corporations. What does it mean? I don't know. It's, it's just lots nothing. of longish words stuck together with and. I'm enjoying this. How many of these have you got? i got three more. Ready? Yep. Jodel. Jodel? Yeah. A man called Joe sings your favourite song back at you quickly. <laughs> no, it's way more vague. Jodel shows you what people around you are talking about. Okay. Majency. It's a PR agency set up exclusively for former sergeant majors. <laughs> it's an actual Internet of Things thing. Oh, yeah. It's a box that connects people. It helps teams work better together, facilitates interactivity, and gives everyone a voice in a meeting. Oh, it's just... It, almost every app that I've spotted at this particular summit this year have said, it's like Slack meets... It's all got to be like Slack meets something. Oh, God, I've... Like yeah. Slack meets dustbins. It's just everywhere. Slack is everywhere. Yeah. Should, yeah, uh, completely. And yet, I, in the real world, Slack is nowhere. It's it, only in trendy internet companies. The last one? Yeah. Swat. No. You haven't made that up. Do you want to spell it? Oh, OK, yeah. T-W-O-H-A-T. It's at... <laughs> Two hat. It's two hat, but they've okay. made it one word, so it reads. I'm not joking. Yeah. It reads as tuat. Tuat. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So two hat is for people that do two jobs to help them multitask between the two different jobs that they do. Not even close. I didn't get one right. They are a leading provider of user-generated content filtering and moderation tools. Okay, so you can basically tell how well your YouTube video is ranking. Yeah, but um, moderation, and they're called twat. Yeah. I mean, it reads as twat. I thought you would find that funny. I do I was, find it funny. I was standing there laughing no, my face This is the face, face of someone who finds that dryly funny. We don't all giggle like possess little girls. No, well, I don't either. <laughs> yeah, I don't, I don't <laughs> recognise that caricature, he says, giggling like a buffoon. Uh, if anyone has a trend, twat-based or otherwise, that they would like to uh, forward on for a future edition of The Modern Man, Ollie Pitt, what should they do? At The Modern Man on Twitter, yes. which is also an app. Anyway, obrigado. Bye. Bye. Now, we've all had moments when we've been a little hard up for cash. Uh, maybe you've been holding out those last few days at the end of the month before your paycheck arrives. Or perhaps when your boiler broke down, you had to cancel a holiday or sell your car. I think I can assume with confidence that you've never been as hard up as my guest today, Radcliffe Royds, who was born into money, but found himself down on his luck and decided with his mate Delroy to take matters into his own hands. And I sort of got all gung-ho and I said, come on, Del, 
we really need to uh, we need to raise our game. And I'm thought I'm privately educated. I've got all these fabulous advantages in life. Use your brain, Rad. And I decided that we were going to rob a bank. We had plastic bags. We had bananas. Actually, I had a banana and Dell had a cucumber. To pretend that it was a gun. If it became necessary, the idea was to go in at opening hours when people's guard would be down and they'd be flustered and, you know, sorting out their till record and sorting out their bit ready for the day. Mm-hmm. And was to go in there and very firmly push a note through uh, and say, I just want you to fill this bag. Is that what the note said? You went yeah. in with a prepared note? Yeah. Note, I just want you to fill this bag. The note was very simple. It was written in um, mascara on uh, a piece of folded A4 paper. Uh, I had a Scrabble kit. For some reason, I'd kept the bag that it came in. It was a sort of travel Scrabble thing. I kept the bag for some reason, and I thought it looked rather good as a swag bag, you know, that sort of old-fashioned idea <laughs> of guy with it over his shoulder. And the idea was to freak them out so much that they would knee-jerk reaction, just fill the bag with whatever money they had in the till drawer. And we weren't trying to get to the safe, wasn't trying to do anything too heavy. I do appreciate that uh, even imitating a firearm becomes a very serious crime. My only mitigating circumstance was that I was so high on crack cocaine I couldn't have told you what my name was, let alone what I was really doing. I just knew that I needed to get lots of cash. And I thought if we go in, first thing, we'll probably get, you know, five grand, ten grand. We'll walk out. That's us. Happy. Did Um, you have anything on your face to disguise yourself? No, absolutely not. I went to a part of town where I thought I wouldn't be recognised, so I chose the King's Road, (laughs) which had been my stamping ground years previously. By the time we actually got our shit together, it was Sunday morning. And um, like most banks, the one we'd chosen, which was NatWest, was shut on Sunday morning. It wasn't particularly well thought through. And my only training for this caper had been stealing meat, really, from shoplifting out of Sainsbury's and Waitrose. I would steal 10 quid's worth of meat. I'd get five pounds for it. So you'd get 50p in the pound. From, from, from who? Well, I actually, slight justification, um, at the time justified what I was doing because I had uh, one of the boroughs, uh, central London boroughs, the lady who was tasked with supplying Meals on Wheels for the elderly, I had an in to her. And um, I would go around with 100 quid's worth of meat and she would give me 50p in the pound. So if I had 100 pounds worth, she'd give me 50 quid. And that would be my breakfast. I'd go and do it again. And and that would... Go towards Meals on Wheels. Meals on Wheels. Yeah. Your stolen meat would be given yeah. out. So it was really, I mean, it was twofold sort of joy, really, because it was, it was helping the, the, the homeless and uh, the Meals on Wheels uh, crew, the elderly. It was a public service, I think, <laughs> fair to say. Let's just go back to that bank then. So, right. so you go in, you so hand it's over Sunday your morning, note. And yeah. of course, you know, you sort of slightly realise, oh, hang on, the bank's not going to be open. I noticed there was a Portuguese cleaning crew. And I said to my, my oppo, I said, all right, We'll go in as part of the cleaning crew. And the idea was we were going to crash through if we had to, get into the main bit of the bank. This was the cleaning crew who had obviously access everywhere. Mm. And my thinking was that they wouldn't empty the trays at the counter. I thought they must leave money in those, you know, because the whole building gets locked up. And it was just a swipe and swoop and be in and out. You know, the whole caper was going to take a minute. As you can imagine, didn't really blend in with the Portuguese cleaning crew in quite the way one would have hoped. Mm. And they immediately challenged us. And I tried to style it out. You know, and I, my, my Portuguese can reach to, I think I can order prawns, two <laughs> beers and four coffees. And that's about as far as it goes. Um, but you got chased out of the building, not to be deterred. There were some people at the cash point. 
So having tried to rob the bank, I then downgraded the plan and just took, I think it was 200 quid I got, uh, just got hold of the guy at the cash point. Robbed he, it off someone who was withdrawing some I, cash. Yeah, absolutely, as we passed. I just said, hang on a minute, Del. Elbowed the guy out of the way, grabbed the money. And by now, the police had been alerted and the bank is very near where the police station in Chelsea is. Del went left, I went right, and I went charging up the road. And uh, above the builder, have a go hero, uh, driving a Nissan Irvan, drove at me and pinned me up against the wall. So I couldn't move. Oh, deliberately? Oh, yeah. To hold you for the police? Oh, yeah, yeah. It was, the game was up. So, how does a sort of debonair-sounding chap from the King's Road end up 20 years later out of his face on crack cocaine trying to rob a bank? It was the breakdown of my second marriage. Um, I came home from a weekend away and my wife had changed the locks. And I rang up an old mate, you know, I had to go and stay somewhere, um, thinking I'd be able to talk her around. And I came to my friend's house uh, up in West London, just by Lambert Grove. And as I walked in the door, he said, no, oh, man, what a bitch. Um, poor thing, you know, come on in, come on in. And his girlfriend was uh, standing behind him, carrying a tray, rather attractive sort of silver salver, uh, on which were placed various pharmaceuticals. And I, at this point, had been drug-free for a little while. I was so stung at the rejection and the sort of realisation of the marriage. You know, I had only got married five months before, so... Mm. It was, uh, I found, a rather devastating blow to suddenly find myself a homeless, uh, the marriage breaking up, and I effectively just stayed at his house, and we just took more and more drugs. I had the joint account, and I was so angry with my ex-wife pending, as she was, that I was just rinsing that, so £300 a day. On drugs? Straight on to heroin and, and crack cocaine. Wow. It's interesting, isn't it, because you'd assume with a lot of people that are from your sort of background... Cocaine was in fashion in the 80s. But there oh, basically yeah. comes a point where you'll say, you know, I'll spend my money on, on wine and cocaine, basically, and not go on to smack. That that's something that's just... I was a bit of a wild child, yes. And I had access to, to um, money and drugs at a very young age. And I sort of went through a fairly typical progression. You know, I smoked weed and blue acid and did lines of coke. And actually, the very first time I took heroin... I didn't know I was taking it. I better be a bit careful what I say, but should we say one of the most senior officers of the court in Scotland, his son, um, I was selling him a weight of dope. I was a dope, dope dealer uh, in Edinburgh after I'd been chucked out of school. And um, I uh, was playing backgammon. You know, it was like a De Palma movie, you know, Scarface. You know, we were playing backgammon and he said, hey, do you want a line of coke? I said, yeah, yeah, man. You know, and I was going to try and sell him this dope and you know, he was trying to get me relaxed talking about music, talking about this, have a line of coke, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I had this line of coke, and I went, snorted it, and went, whoa, wow, that's the best coke I've ever had. And he said, uh, oh, I didn't mention it, it's, uh, it's mixed with smack. I didn't actually know what smack was. This is a slang term for heroin. You know, my brother, he's a very establishment figure and runs the army, and my sister is a wonderful, you know, mother and, and, and businesswoman. You know, they had the same upbringing I did. They didn't go down the route I did. But I didn't not know what was right or what was wrong. I just had a complete inability to honour that in myself. And that is the bit that is 
corrosive and corrupting. I shared a flat with one of the Queen's ladies-in-waiting, in fact. So latterly, when I sort of held on to the drugs, I would hide them under her bed, thinking, well, the police are never going to search her. So it was perfect. I sort of had this lovely dual life where I was the posh kid, you know, and all the sort of local Edinburgh hoods thought, well, he's great because he's, he can get us access to a market that we don't can't tap into, you know. Mm. Um, and presumably, the police probably weren't expecting you to be the dealer either. No. You see, that is where so many people, so many people get it wrong. Because you sort of speak with the right accent, you've got the right shoes and the right clothes, and you obviously know the right sort of people, and you've been well-educated, mm. that you're above that sort of thing. And I hid behind that. I would use that to my advantage. I was ruthless. So take me back to your friend's house around Notting Hill. Yep. You're sleeping on his sofa or whatever, and you're taking a lot of drugs, and you're spending the joint account. Mm-hmm. Do you have a job at this point? Yeah, I did, yeah. So you were working nine to five as well? Well, I, I, funnily enough, I was working, <laughs> working. I don't suppose I should say this out loud. Um, I was working for our now uh, current Home Secretary. Um, <laughs> uh, working for a company called the Investors Notice Board. Uh-huh. Um, I'd been headhunted by Amber Rudd, and I worked very closely with her. Um, and, uh, gosh, I could be running the country by now, couldn't I? I had all the trappings, you know, a nice house in Clapham and a wife and three children and two stepchildren and prospects, you know, the man, man was going places. Had you been drinking the whole way through your marriage anyway? No. So you'd actually been completely clean yep. and then went straight back into heroin? Yep. Wow. I can imagine that that's just a, a sudden crash. It was rather like having sex with a gorilla. It seemed like a good idea at the time, and it wasn't me that was going to say when to stop. So I, I can sort of guess what happened here. You lost your job eventually. Yeah, I, I, sort, of, I sort of became more and more untogether. And you lost your money. And when the money stopped and my wife had stopped the joint account, I had to get creative. And uh, I started being very creative, and I would ring people up saying, "Oh, mate, nightmare! My car's been towed away. Can you can you lend me three hundred pounds? I'm going to get my car out." And I got away with this for you know a good couple of months. And all that money went straight onto drugs. Oh, really? all I ever did was buy drugs, and I very quickly went back into the life, and I didn't even bother to hide it. Now, my watchword in the past was always to hide. So I'd be high, but I'd hide it. Now I didn't have any breaks. I had no, I was totally kamikaze. I'd go babysit someone's house for a while. You know, I'd sell the light fittings. You know, it's one poor guy. I sold his fireplace, I sold his floorboards. Where were you living when you robbed the bank? Oh, I was living in, um, I was living in a skip in the West End. In a dumpster? Yep. It was a 12-yard builder's skip. It was this bizarre thing. I rang my, I, in fact, I'll never forget it. I, it was, must have been... August, end of August, late August, early September, and I rang my mother and said, oh, how would it be if I came home for a few days, thinking I just want some respite, somewhere safe to hole up? And she very curtly said, oh, no, darling, our insurance wouldn't cover that. <laughs> what did you mean by that? I wasn't welcome. My parents had learned the hard way to uh, ring-fence themselves from me and my, my addiction. You know, so I, you know, I didn't have any support from my family whatsoever. Is that because, looking back on it now, I mean, that sounds very unsupportive, obviously, but is that because she wanted you to get arrested? She wanted you to yes, have to be forced believed, to clean up? They genuinely believed that the, the thing to do was to accelerate me towards what we call a rock bottom, mm. where I would actually reach out and go, oh, help. Mm. What it deserved to do is just make me more and more angry. I mean, living in a skip in Soho, you see a lot of people walk past you who were the kind of, the kind of chaps you were at school with. Oh, I, I used to various 
times. I remember begging outside Bayswater Station, sitting there with a dog on a string type arrangement, and um, my children's nanny <laughs> standing in front of me in floods of tears. I mean, they often say we don't have feelings when we're using uh, this sense of shame. I had that was awful. And she was just standing there crying, saying, how can you do this? And I couldn't, I didn't have an answer. All I could do was more. You just, you just needed more drugs. Yeah. It was incredibly... But you're intelligent enough to know you desperately needed help, so why didn't you reach out for help? Just because the power of the heroin was stronger? Yeah. I mean, I can see where you see the dilemma. Is, is why this guy, you know, had all these advantages, privately educated, comes from money... Well set, intelligent. But all these advantages weren't. The nature of addiction is this. It, it subsumes every other facet of humanity. I would tell you how much I love my children, but I'd be smoking their birthday presents in a crack house while they waited for me to not show up at their birthday parties. I was a nightmare. So that's how you found yourself trying badly to rob a bank, and then you get arrested... This is the point where your parents would be thinking, good, he's going to get his act sorted out now. What, what happened? Well, what actually did happen is, of course, I, I, I got arrested. And as soon as they knew who I was, you know, they thought it was Christmas. They cleaned up every, you know, all the sort of stolen meat mystery of, 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 of London supermarkets was cleared up in the trice. You know. And I got uh, sent off to Wandsworth. And when uh, my Bob the Builder, Have a Go Hero, had... Um, Part he'd driven over my feet and he'd crushed my big toes. And so I was in uh, real agony. And my legs had swollen up. I had what I call, affectionately call, kebab leg disease. And they'd swelled up. I was, you know, full of cellulitis and was living rough and feral. So, you know, my hygiene standard was way down. You know, it probably saved my life going into prison. But I was so ill, they said, you know, you've got to take me to a hospital. And I was sort of shackled physically pinioned to these guards, you know, because I was a danger to society, apparently. I mean, where they thought I was going to run, you know, I had broken toes, I could barely hobble. And this cousin of my second wife was at a sort of Friends of the Hospital bookstall in, in the corridor of the hospital, and it was a long corridor, and I'm tall, so she saw me in a, from a distance and sort of went, oh, you who and, and then saw me, sort of shackled to these huge sort of, you know, meathead screws. And she sort of passed out. And I was so shocked. And I sort of saw a reflection of myself in a, in a glass panel and I was scabby and dirty and unwashed and at the vagaries and the mercy of the criminal justice system. And that was not my plan. I wanted to chill out and get high. I was jailed, which is held on judges' remand for about a year. Every three weeks, taken up for sentencing. Every three weeks, they couldn't work out what to do with me. And I, funnily enough, was in the dock, which is not a place I was customarily used to telling the truth and the judge turned to me and he's Justin Phillips a very enlightened man I'm incredibly grateful to him he turned to me he said what on earth do I do with you Radcliffe and I broke down actually and I just said help me and he said how do you help how can I help you and I didn't have any answers I really didn't I, he used me as a guinea pig his experience of dealing with the sort of day to day traffic of ne'er-do-wells going through his court you know something like 85 percent of all crime in london is drug related or drink related and he very he engaged with me as a human being and he took me out of the dock and he would sit next to me he'd sit there with you know tracky bottoms and a pair of trainers in the court and he 
developed this thing called the Dedicated Drugs Court in West London. And they'd had one in Leeds and one in, in London, where certain trigger offences, you'd be approached by the probation services and said, if you are here as a result of a drug problem, we are prepared to offer you support and help to combat that. And aimed at harm reduction. You know, I mean, a junkie has to steal lots of handbags and stuff to get his habit fed, you know. But unfortunately, that's not the end of the story because, as you say, yeah. even though you've gone through that whole process and you did manage to come clean again for a I period, yeah. there was another relapse. You know, very quickly, one, you put your life back together, you physically get better very quickly, and you, you know, then you got jobs, I re-engaged with my family, and I became a productive member of society. You know, and, and, and To all intents and purposes, so I thought, pretty at one with the world. The problem with addiction is the condition is not about the drugs, it's about the addict. And the addict, left untreated, the disease will continue, and people will find themselves going into obsessive compulsive behaviours in other ways. For me, I had sort of spent 10 years, you, know, you think, well, that's behind me, I've done that. I'll be all right to have a couple of drinks. I'd moved out of London, I was in a new relationship with a lovely girlfriend and step, more stepchildren, and all family friends, and everyone knew you know, each other, and we, you know, I had enriching, engaging relationships with my children and my family, and with myself. But I, for some reason, I put my foot off the gas, or I, I sort of thought, well, I'm not interested in taking drugs, but it'd be nice to have a couple of drinks at a party, you know. I mean, some people are shouting at their mobile phones now as they listen to this, saying that's obviously ridiculous. I'm not, actually. I mean, I'm looking at you, and I'm hearing you tell this story, and I can understand that. I can understand that after 10 years of being clean, yeah. you might think your addictive personality wouldn't extend to a couple of glasses of wine. Absolutely. And I mean, that you know, there, there's no hiding from it. That, that was what I thought. I thought I would be OK. Yeah, then, which seems naive now, but yeah, I get it. with experience, we, yeah. we can look back. And you, you might think that with the knowledge I'd had, I guess I stopped believing that I was powerless over those drink and those drugs. You know, the, the, the concept of once you put it in my system, it unleashes the whirlwind. I mean, every experience I had told me that was so. But I still believed that having spent so much time, I mean, you know, 10 years is a long time. I didn't care what anybody says. That's a long time not to be doing all that. You forget. And I'd moved out of London. So my contact with my solution became thinner and thinner and thinner. And I didn't take it under committee. I just decided with my partner. I said, you know, I think I might have a have a couple of drinks go on why not I was then compounded by I had um, some chronic pain issues with, with sciatica and prolapse discs and they put me on a, on a drug called pregabalin oh, hideous stuff anyway I went cold turkey off that stuff the pain problem was still there and I started this time taking over the counter medication some Nurofen plus and having the odd drink not every day at parties, you know, dinner once or twice a week, you know, tie one on. I really got pissed. And then there were a couple of legendary occasions when I did and smoked a few spliffs. And then somebody had some ecstasy and I, you know, and I thought, well, it's still not the heroin that I, you know, and the crack, you know, it's not all that. The ability to delude myself is still there, that denial system. Hmm. And I ended up drinking a litre of vodka a day, taking 100 Neurofen Plus a day. Yes. and telling myself, well, at least I'm not on the powders and I'm not on the needle. Made myself incredibly ill. So ill, in fact, I ended up in a coma for two months. And uh, I've come out of that coma 
This is recent, isn't it? This was a year ago. It's almost a year ago to the day I left hospital, yeah. You don't look like you've recently been in a cobra. I mean, I'll be honest, you look thin. You don't look I was 16 stone when I went into hospital. I'm now nine. Yeah. So my friends all think I've got AIDS or cancer or I'm checking out. What do you think your old mate Amber Rudd should do about drugs policy in this country? I think that um, given that she knows several people, me included, who have first-hand experience of of, uh, drug addiction and how to uh, survive a habit, how to get over one and how to live drug-free, they should draw or she should get her her team and her civil servants to draw on the experience of people who have found a route out and actually stop fighting an unwinnable war on drugs. It clearly, prohibition clearly doesn't work because everybody's still doing what they do. So that clearly doesn't work. And it's insane to go on promulgating the, the notion that we can beat the war on drugs. You can't. There are more and more poppy fields. There are more and more bales of cocaine. What they should do is legalise the lot of it, decriminalise it, reduce the collateral damage, because society's real problem with drug addicts is not the drug addict, it's the fact that they keep stealing and robbing your television. Stop that. People are left to their own devices, they can do what they like. Yes, look at the Portuguese model. They have taken drug policy out of the criminal justice system and put it into the health system, and they're having fantastic results. If you criminalise it, you just glamorise it. You just marginalise the people and put them in a position where they are unable to access the help they need because by doing so they have to admit they're they're ne'er-do-wells and they immediately, you you marginalise them. So I would hope that she would have the the humility to, to look at people who actually know what they're talking about and that's people that have had a drug problem or a drink problem or have one, you know, and who have found a way out of it. The war on drugs will never be won as long as they go about it in the way they do. It's insane. Coming up next, Alex Fox will be here to talk sex. But as is traditionally the case, before any kind of sexual liaison should consensually occur, a date should happen first. And if you're struggling in that world, an app that might be here to help you is the sponsor of this week's Modern Man. It is called Dragon Fruit, and its founder is Ori, and he's with me now. Hi, Ori. Hi, Ali. Tell us about your app. So Dragon Fruit is a dating app for geeks by geeks. You have the opportunity to talk to somebody, at least on our platform, that you already know what they're into and what kind of person they are based on that interest. And that means that you can cut straight through all of the initial awkwardness and just have a conversation about something that you're comfortable talking about and enjoy talking about. So what is the most popular geekdom on Dragon Fruit? Ooh, uh, we have a lot of people who are into various video games. I will say that uh, Pokemon Go has taken a huge surge since its release. (laughs) We have a lot of uh, science fiction and fantasy people, but honestly, there are geeks of all kinds on the site. So the good news is that includes podcasts. There is a geekdom for podcasts and specifically this one. Yes, absolutely right and uh, anybody who listens to this and specifies that their geekdom is the modern man is able to access some of our premium features for free and before they launch so you'll get an advanced peek into the cool stuff that we're working on Uh, because it's important to note right now 
Everything about the app is absolutely free. Free to download, free to sign up, free to use and chat and do everything you need. That is the kind of price that podcast listeners like to pay, Ori. Uh, remind us one more time, if you're on iOS or you're on Android, what do you need to type in to find your app? On both stores, just Dragonfruit will do. And you can also get to those stores by looking at our website, dragonfruitapp.com. If we do get a modern man wedding out of uh, listeners bonding over the app, then we'll do another promotional tie-up, yes? Oh, that would be so (laughs) brilliant. I can't even express. Well, we've come to that moment of the episode where you realise that the previous half an hour was mere foreplay for our trip down the foxhole with Alex Fox. Down the foxhole theme. That sounds a bit depressing and intimidating, doesn't it? Every week, your questions of sex are brought to you by mycondom.com the site where you can, um, you know, buy prophylactics and stuff. And even better, you don't have to buy a whole box. You can buy them individually, like pick and mix or pick and dicks, if you will. Alex has got a background as a copywriter. She churns out this stuff. She doesn't even know she's doing it. Pick and dicks. Amazing. Anyway, thank you to them. Uh, This week, Alex, what have you been up to? I have been testing the new £1 vibrators from Poundland. Ooh. Getting a pounding from Poundland. Uh... Giving myself a porgasm. So long as it's waterproof and vibrates, I imagine the basic functions are covered, aren't they? Relatively inexpensively. It's not bad. It has a fair amount of bang for your buck. Yeah. It is extremely noisy. It sounds like an OAP's false teeth during a particularly (laughs) turbulent flight. It's a bit of a false economy because the Poundland bullet vibrator doesn't come with batteries. You have to buy the batteries separately. Yeah, you can buy about 20 batteries for a quid there. True, but they're crap ones, aren't they? Yeah. They've sold out pretty much in every Poundland store across the UK. I was sourcing them for an article and I had to get two couriered to me from uh, (laughs) somewhere in Bognor Regis, I think. Wow. I'd hesitate to use the phrase stocking fillers, but I imagine that they're probably going to be a Christmas hit for that reason. Okay, uh, here's this week's question. It's from someone who hasn't given their name, but they say, Visible body piercings have become more and more common over the last couple of decades. So, nose, mouth, ears. I think we know where this is going. However, have intimate body piercings become equally as widespread? What are the benefits? And do they really outweigh the initial pain and sometimes lengthy healing times associated with such procedures? Well, this is actually something I know a lot about because I used to edit the body modification pages of Bizarre magazine back in my Bizarre days and I saw some pretty full-on intimate piercings. I think the wilder ones I saw involved a woman who had had her cervix pierced and several gentlemen who had actually split their cocks down the middle. It's called a bifurcated penis. It's for people who... I'm shutting my eyes, listeners, just so I don't have to look at her while she says this. Not the only Somehow it's like it's not really happening. But those are much more extreme forms of intimate piercings. What about the people who are just getting the ordinary intimate piercings done? You know, your Prince Albert's, that kind of thing. Well, Prince Albert is probably the most popular male intimate piercing. Uh, That's commonly a ring that goes through the point in the penis where the head meets the shaft. And it's actually a surprisingly thin piece of skin there. It's not as thick as you'd imagine. For women, the most popular 
genital piercing is probably what's called a vertical clitoral hood. Um, people often speak about getting their clitoris pierced. That's actually really, really rare uh, and quite dangerous to have a clitoral piercing. It can it can desensitise you. It can cause nerve damage. Um, it's it's something that only to be undertaken by a very very skilled piercer. Yeah. Uh, whereas a vertical clitoral hood piercing will go through the hood of the clitoris, understandably, and it will go from the top of the body downwards rather than from side to side so actually in a way that is almost the kind of female equivalent of the prince albert isn't it it's designed to do the same thing you're basically taking the bit that heightens sensation and heightening it yes it's designed to rub on the clitoris although it's really important i must point out that recent changes in uk law mean that strictly any form of genital piercing on a woman is now counted as female genital mutilation what it's counted under the law against fgm now this is because in some cases there are ritualistic practices relating to piercing young women against their will sure but if you consensually go along and say i want my clitoral hood pierced then that's legal isn't it strictly that has to be reported to authorities as a crime but it is a gray area there are still many piercers who are offering this procedure and i imagine there will be test cases um but our uh our, our, our person who wrote in asked for the pros and cons yes Well, the pros are it can feel really great during sex and lots of people like the look of it. The cons are... You beat when you go through airport security? (laughs) Yeah, you do. (laughs) You do indeed. Um, The cons with a Prince Albert... You stick to the front of your fridge when you walk past. (laughs) You might break your girlfriend's teeth as well. Oh, good luck. It's it's a good idea to consider how (laughs) if you have a large piece of metal in the end of your knob and your girlfriend is giving you head, she can actually, it can be damaging to her mouth, so go slow. Uh, Prince Alberts can make the use of condoms a little bit more tricky because they can tear Tear, them. Um, I advocate putting a little bit of water-based lubricant either on the piercing or inside the condom so that it moves over the piercing more easily. Uh, Prince Alberts are quite, if the correct jewellery is used, they should be fairly smooth, so it's it's not the problem you think it might be. If two partners both have genital piercings there is a chance that much like two people kissing with braces they can get entangled yeah wow that's a terrifying prospect isn't it and of course you also need to um take into account that uh you may get an infection if you don't look after your piercing properly and consider your lifestyle as well if you're someone who rides a bike a lot for example or does other sports you might not want a big skewer through your wanger There are a number of things that you can do with your piercings. I've seen people thread ribbons through rings on their labia, for example, to corset them together. And I've also seen men who've got a Prince Albert through the end of their cock and then another piercing elsewhere in their genital region. Fix the two together with a padlock as a way of enforcing them not being able to have sex for a while, which which they can find exciting. I've seen a lot of unusual things done to people's willies, Ollie. One of my first ever photographic shoots for Bizarre, the photographer nearly passed out on because it was watching a guy having a procedure done known as genital beading, where tiny little silicone beads are implanted under the skin of the shaft of the penis in order to quite literally make it ribbed for her pleasure. And each little bead has a tiny hole in it, so scar tissue can grow through them and keep them in place, and you end up with a knobbly knob. There are many times that I'm grateful that this podcast is audio only, but that was certainly one of them. I saw the visual. (laughs) I can't erase that from my cerebrum. Uh, If you have a question for Alex for next week's show, what do you need to do? 
you need to head over to our website, which is modernman.co.uk and click on feedback to ask me anything you desire. And if you don't have an intimate piercing, then you may well want a condom this week. If you do, head on down to mycondom.com, proud sponsors of the Foxhole on The Modern Man. And Alex. You can get 15% off your entire order by using the code FOXHOLE. Well, that is very nearly it for this week's episode of The Modern Man. But I do have time to bring you a new Manbassador. It is Chris who approached me personally at Web Summit in Lisbon to out himself as a man fan. He is, believe it or not, the CEO of the British Portuguese Chamber of Commerce. Uh, he said that he listens to all of my podcasts, but with a glint in his eye, he didn't confess that he particularly enjoys the work of Alex Fox. Uh, so, Chris, um, you already have an important job, but I am honoured to appoint you Manbassador for Portugal. Remember to put it on your publicly listed tax return. Right, music now. Our theme is by Django Django off their self-titled debut album. And this filthy little thing is by Fantagram. The song is called You Don't Get Me High Anymore. I know, slightly uncomfortable scheduling this week, bearing in mind my interview with Radcliffe, but it's too good to keep to ourselves. It's out now on Republic Records. I've been Ollie Mann, the producer Matt Hill, and we'll see you next Tuesday. Hi, my name is Kay Adams, and to be honest, I'm not so good with the ageing process, so I enlisted my old chum, the filter-free Cara McKenzie, to advise. Could you imagine being a porn star? The room would need to be really hot for me to strip (laughs) off. To be honest, she's not much help, but she is rather amusing. And along with some great guests, Joe Brand, Andy Oliver, Anton Dubeck, Ruth Langsford and Craig Revel Horwood, darling, we are learning how to be 60. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.